We are in Genesis 33. Uh, if you're staying, you can turn there. And uh, as I read Genesis 33, um, keep in the back of your mind the, the readings uh, that we already had from Numbers and from Luke 15 as a sort of touch on this. So, let's see. There we go. I'm wondering where Eli is. Something happened without my knowledge. (laughs) These things happen. All right, Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel with Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last... Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in your sight, my lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail. And that the nursing flocks and herds uh, are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. And I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of my men who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money of the, uh, the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar 
and called it El, Elohe Israel. Let's pray. Father, we ask that according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, and may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of that love, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Accomplish this through the reading and the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Sometimes things are quite anticlimactic. I have to apologize for Broncos fans, because two of the worst Super Bowl blowouts in history have been suffered by the Broncos and John Elway. On one of those particular occasions, which was Super Bowl, let me get the number right, ooh, 24, I missed the game, essentially. I had friends over to my house, I was making pizzas, and by the time I got downstairs where the game was, it was so out of control that it was useless to even watch. 55 to 10. Ugly. Ugly. Okay? Anticlimactic. I'm hoping next Sunday won't be anticlimactic. But uh, nonetheless, thinking of this, the idea of sort of anticlimactic, I thought of a movie that had to do with two brothers. Two brothers who had not spoken to one another in years and years. It's called The Straight Story, and perhaps you saw it. It was an independent film that came out, I don't know, about a decade or so ago. And so what happens is this film begins with one of the brothers at home getting the phone call that his brother has been struck ill. He's old enough that he's not able to drive a car. He has no vehicle. And so what he does is he basically retrofits his lawnmower to, tra- to travel from his home to his brother's home. And most of the movie is about the escapades that happened to him and, and how uh, you know, the lawnmower really can't go up the really big, steep hills, so he has to do something else to it. And the people that he meets along the way... And I say it's anticlimactic because here it is, two brothers that have been separated because of some conflict that happened decades ago It was that apparently was so bad that they didn't, didn't even talk to each other. Okay, That's the situation that's going on in the back of my head. This must be really bad. you know. What, we don't know what actually happened. And so what happens? He shows up at his brother's place, which looked remarkably like his own place. His brother is sitting on the porch in a rocking chair, and he just walks up sits down next to his brother, and that's it. No tears, no apologies, no confessions. Just it. They sit in the rocking chair together. Whatever, whatever was wrong has suddenly not mattered all that much, and they've just sort of kind of picked up where they left off in some sense. Let's keep that in mind as we look at this story of two brothers who have been apart for 20 years because of sin, because of what one has done to the other. The big idea this morning is that God establishes our identity, freeing us to testify and to worship. And the first part of that is God indeed establishes our identity by grace. Now we see that um, Jacob here, okay, he has just wrestled with the angel, wrestled with God. He has just prevailed in a sense that God has blessed him. And in, in, in a sense, similar to what we find in Luke 15, he has found acceptance with God the Father. 
but he's not sure whether his own brother is going to accept him. Will he be treated like the younger brother was treated by his older brother? What will happen to him? What will he experience? And so here he has, he has this life-changing encounter with God. He looks up as the sun rises, and he sees his brother in the distance coming. And of course, as we know from earlier, he's not coming alone. He's coming with 400 of his men. These are not 400 of his servants who were ready to take care of his crops. These are 400 armed men. Jacob does not know how this is going to turn out. He knows now he is accepted by God, but he does not know if he will be accepted by his brother. But there's something reflective of the change that takes place in Jacob is revealed here. Remember, before his plan was to send his wives and his children ahead of himself, he was going to be in the back end and and hope that by the time it all got to him that it was all okay, that perhaps Esau's bloodlust would have been satisfied and maybe that Jacob would live or that perhaps he would see those cute faces and he would relent and not kill Jacob. But this time, instead of doing that, Jacob changes his plan and he goes first. He moves from the back of the line to the front of the line. He now has a boldness and as he begins to encounter his brother. He's still afraid, he's still uncertain as to what will take place, but he goes first. We see him bowing seven times. The closer he gets, he bows again, his face touching to the ground. This is basically the protocol when you're coming before an ancient potentate. He's reflect, he's, he's acting as if his brother is his Lord and uses that same terminology we talked about uh, the last couple weeks. He's calling himself his servant or his vassal, and Esau is the Lord between the two of them. But notice the, the wives. His wives and children are grouped in ascending order of their importance to Jacob. The most important ones are in the back. Rachel. Joseph. Favoritism still has a part in his heart. He's, he's, although he is changed, he is not completely changed. Although he is a different man, he is not completely different. He's still going to struggle with some of the same sins he struggled with before his encounter with God by the river. How would Esau greet Jacob? What was going through his mind? Similarly, what was going through the minds of those two brothers? One where he knows he's coming close to his his brother's place, and the other one when he sits in his rocking chair in that movie, and he sees his brother coming, and what's my brother going to say? What's he going to do? Similar idea here. Not only that, but this is setting the pattern for what's going to take place. Think for a moment. Jacob is one who has been off in a far country. Jacob has been serving under Laban. He has been treated harshly by Laban, just as the Israelites in a far country, Egypt, had been treated harshly by the Egyptians. Yet, in spite of all of that, both, both Jacob and Israel prospered. We'll get to that again later. But here they come. They meet their distant relatives. Well, actually, for Jacob, it's not very distant. It's his brother. But Jacob, uh, Esau's descendants would be distant relatives of Israel's descendants. We read about this in Numbers. They're coming. And here in, in Numbers, they come with armed men, just like 
Esau does. But this time, instead of permitting them to pass through, Esau does something different. Probably what was not expected. But when you think of the character of Esau from what we looked at before, it probably should have been expected. Because Esau was a man who lived in the moment. He's not a man who thought ahead. He was someone who just kind of went with the flow of things. And he was his attitudes would change. And while he was angry and wanting to kill his brother back then, right now, he's just like, brother, not servant. Brother. Falls upon him, covers him with kisses, Probably how you would not want your brother to treat you. Okay? But here it is. Here is, here is Jacob, not sure what's going to happen. Imagine the spiritual and emotional disequilibrium he must have felt. And yet, he stands there, and he's ready for what is what comes, even though he's not sure what it will come. And as I was preparing for the sermon, I'm, I'm reading part of Keller's new book on marriage, and there was something in there he said that made sense of all of this to me, and that was the idea of identity. And where you get your ultimate identity, where you find out who you really are and what matters to you the most. And if it's Christ, you're in a good place. There, although hardship comes, although there's disappointment, there's, things are okay. But if it is not Christ, if your identity is rooted in something else, work, family, I don't know how your sports team did, doesn't matter. When hardship comes, you are not just disappointed, but you are devastated and possibly even destroyed. So if you're seeking your ultimate identity from your job, what happens when you lose it? You can't just go, oh well, I'll just find another one. But you are devastated. Because a part of who you are has just been hacked off, so to speak. And you are not you until you find another job. If you seek your ultimate identity in your marriage, if you have a problem in your marriage, that is devastating to you. It's not just a hardship, but it is emotionally crippling to you. And so if Jacob is approaching this moment and his identity is not from God, by grace, he is going, it's like the world is out of control. It's like some of those amusement park rides where you have no control and your your stomach starts to feel not quite right because you've been going in, spir- in circles too many times. Okay, it's very discombobulating. Psalm 40. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That's Jacob. In his encounter with God, God not only crippled him, but he put his feet on a rock. Jacob is finally now on solid ground, the solid ground of God's grace. He is stable through all of these shifts and uncertainties. The floor is not moving underneath him, but it's a solid rock, not a shifting sand. So he's able to face it in a way that he was not able to face it before. And 
Where is your identity? You can recognize it by what really hits you. What really sends you for a loss? What turns your world upside down? That's probably where you're seeking your identity. If our identity is in Christ, then yeah, disappointment, but not devastation. What's interesting to me as I think about this is that Jacob here finally, you know, he's he's not defending himself. He's not asserting his rights. It is God who defends him. Okay, it's not the gifts that he sent. It's not the scheming that he did. It's not the humbling of himself that earned him this peace with his brother. It is God who defended him, who protected him, who paved all this over so that he would have welcome, be welcomed by his brother Esau. Okay, it's easy to look at it as if it's everything Jacob did created this, but it's not. It's God who did this. And when you're struggling in the midst of a conflict at work or at home, what is our tendency? Our tendency is to want to defend ourselves. Our tendency is to want to prove our point. We want to call the lawyers that are in our heads. You know, as I've talked about before, the the law firm of Cavallero, Cavallero, and Cavallero, you know. And you might have your law firm of, uh, I won't give anybody's name, but it might be four in your law firm, and I only got three, you know. (laughs) I'm outnumbered. Actually, I should say Kevin, because Kevin is a lawyer. Okay. But uh, nonetheless, that is our tendency. We need someone to defend us, and we, we rise to our own defense. We try to prove why what we did was the best thing. He didn't do that this time. He, in a sense, threw himself, just as he prayed, upon the mercies of God, and God showed mercy. Revealed in the fact that his brother ran, embraced, kissed him, and wept. We didn't read that, but that's how the father responded to his prodigal son in Luke 15. He violated all protocol. The elderly father was not supposed to run. And he fell upon his son and kissed him. A picture from Jesus' perspective of the gospel of sinners coming home, of being accepted by God. Not just sort of, now we're free to sit down in the rocker next to God. That's not a picture of God's grace. That's a picture of what we do. The picture of God's grace is that he warmly embraces those who come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. It is a picture of such emotional warmth, love, Desire, falling upon, kissing, weeping, embracing. We only have that through Christ. We only have that. The only way to the Father and and the way to that kind of acceptance is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. All others are met with coldness. So if you're in Christ, your identity comes from him to weather the storms of life. So the the, sort of the response, what flows out of that is, first of all, to testify to God's grace to you. If you have experienced this, you are to testify to God's grace to you. 
There's a difference between the brothers. Even though Esau had welcomed him warmly, even though Esau is no longer angry, Esau is still not concerned with God and the promise. It is Jacob who keeps bringing God back into the conversation. Esau is the one who keeps avoiding him. We see that Jacob three times says that he seeks favor from Esau. If I may find favor or grace in your sight. He wants this just as he did from God. He even brings that up. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. What had happened the night before? He had seen the face of God and was not destroyed. He found acceptance and love from God, even though God first made sure Jacob knew who was boss. Okay, Let's not get too cuddly and, and sentimental here. And so it's a similar encounter. He's not sure what he's going to do. He sees this face. He finds acceptance from his brother because he has first found acceptance from God when it could have gone the other way. Esau could have killed him. So he wants the favor of his brother. He does not want the past to linger over their relationship forever. And in fact, he uses, he talks, most of these things are, he's talking about grace, but in one instance he talks about blessing. And when he gives the gifts of the animals to his brother, he's talking about, I'm, I'm restoring that which I stole from you. The blessing of God. He's recognizing that he did wrong. But he has to talk Esau into the gifts. Esau at first is like, ah, I have enough. I don't need this. What's interesting is that what he doesn't say, he doesn't say, I have enough because God has been gracious to me. He says, I just have enough. And he probably had that enough from conquering the land that he was in. Genesis 27, the blessing that was given to Esau, by your sword you shall live. So he went to Seir, and by his sword he made a living. He had enough, but it was not from God. He implies that he does not need the blessing of God that was stolen from him, because he went out and he got his own blessing. Thank you very much. But notice what Jacob does. When, when Esau sees these children and these wives and he goes, what are, who, are the, who are these children whom God has graciously given? Now, when we read the story of how those children came to be, is that how you would have summarized that? I mean, this was a picture of the warfare between the sisters. But now Jacob looks back on this and he's able to say, these are children whom God has graciously given to me. He sees them as unearned gifts from God. He cherishes these children, just as we who are God's people should cherish our children. Doesn't mean that sometimes we don't want to run away. But to cherish them. To recognize that God, in giving us these children, has in fact dealt graciously with us. They're signs of grace. This Thursday night, uh, Amy and I went to see a, a screening of a movie called October Baby, which um, is it's ultimately about the sanctity of life. 
and, and the great blessing of children and how sometimes we don't want that blessing. And so it's, it's a story of um, an abortion attempt gone wrong and the young woman who ends up being adopted. But how discombobulating it all was to her because she knew none of this and she learns of this as a young adult and just how it really sends her for a loop. It's about grace. At the key point of the movie, someone reminds her that because God has been gracious and forgiven us in Christ Jesus, we are to forgive one another. So she's able to extend forgiveness to the woman who tried to exterminate her. She's able to extend forgiveness to the parents who didn't know how to tell her and never did. And the mother found grace from God. It's only when we have God's perspective on these matters that we can embrace these things and recognize, okay, yeah, my kids aren't perfect. And I, not even close to perfect. But they are evidence of God's grace to me and how he's changing me and how I learn how to forgive and I teach them how to forgive. All of that sort of stuff gets rolled into there. And so John Calvin notes, let parents then learn to consider. Okay, it means stop and think. To celebrate the singular kindness of God in their offspring. Good word from John. Then again, here we have Jacob again saying, God has dealt ultimately, graciously with me. The big picture, not just the children, but everything. And, And think of that for a moment. All had not gone well for Jacob. How many of you have slaved for your father in law for 20 years? Anybody? You know? How many of you had your, uh, your bride switched at the last possible second without your knowledge. Anybody? Who had brothers-in-law that wanted to kill them? Anybody? Okay, there's one of you. Um, <laughs> two of you. Okay. Jacob's life was not easy. And yet, he sees that ultimately God has dealt graciously to him, with him. He was homeless, he was cheated, he was abused, he was henpecked by his wives, he was hated, he was surrounded by enemies. He's gone from out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. But he sees that ultimately God is the one who has protected him. God is the one who has kept all of his promises to Jacob. That hardship, in the midst of it, being able to see that. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Remember, Jeremiah is writing this as Jerusalem, his beloved city where God dwelled in the temple, is about to be destroyed or has just been destroyed by the Babylonians. And still he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
with tears, he is confessing this truth. That would be like Jacob. You're a faithful God to me. Through the hardship that I experienced, you were faithful to me. And it was not just Jacob, but Israel itself. God protected and prospered the enslaved Israel. He heard their voice, their cry, and set them free. They too would struggle to see the graciousness of God in all of that, I'm sure. If you would ask them, has God dealt graciously with you? They probably would say, not really until after the Red Sea. But God had been dealing graciously with them all along, preserving them and multiplying them, getting ready, preparing them to be ready to go into the promised land. And even you, he graciously deals with you in the midst of hardship. It is his grace which sustains us daily. But do we recognize that? Do we testify to that? Do we recognize that God keeps his promises in Christ even though we doubt, even though we fear, even though we scheme, even though we squabble? Do we recognize his faithfulness? 2 Corinthians 1, Paul is telling the Corinthians, Hello, people, all God's promises of, all the promises of God find their yes in him, meaning Christ. God's going to keep all of his promises. He's going to keep them in Jesus. Do we realize that? Testify about God's grace to you, just as Jacob here is testifying to God's grace. Jacob's not the hero of this story. It is God. But he is testifying If we don't believe that God has been gracious to us, we're not going to testify to it. I'm currently reading a biography on John Newton. If there was ever someone who testified to it, you don't have to write a song. But nonetheless, he was a man who, his mother raised him in the church until she died of tuberculosis. His father was a sea captain and wasn't around a whole lot, so he spent some time with relatives. And then his father remarried, and uh, things did not go well. Stepmom wasn't too keen on John. He gets sent off to a boarding school. Eventually, he goes and becomes a sailor like his father. And what is humorous to me is that at one point in the, in the, in the book, he mentions that, that John Newton had five captains, and he had managed to alienate all five. He was not a nice guy. He was not someone that you would say, I want him to be my friend. Okay? And yet, here he is. He's been set free from bondage, a, a physical sort of bondage to someone in Africa. He's, been, he's being brought back to England. And there God finds him on a ship in the midst of a storm. His life is not perfect yet. His next job is on a slave trader ship. As a young Christian, he is, he is involved in the, in the, the trade of, of slavery. Buying slaves in Africa, bringing them to America, and then bringing back the money to England. 
And eventually he becomes the captain of the ship, uh, of a ship for the same man and does this a couple of times. Now here's the remarkable thing, lest we be too mean uh, uh, toward John Newton. There was no one at that point in time who was saying this was wrong. It was a cultural sin. Everyone was blind to it. He eventually became, came on, uh, you know, left that because he couldn't deal with the barbarities that were involved in being a slave trader. And years and years later became a minister and wrote songs like Amazing Grace, where he recognized, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Luke 15. You don't have to write a song to testify about it, but if it has happened to you, talk about it. Speak truthfully about it. And so if you have received grace by faith and have a new identity, tell the truth about it. But the story of Jacob does not stop there. We see that we are to worship in response to that grace. We see this other interesting dialogue between Esau and Jacob because he wants to escort Jacob to Seir. But by the promise of God, Jacob is bound somewhere else. And so we have sort of this dialogue that goes on. And you're not sure if it's diplomacy or deceit. Because he's, he's gently refusing his brother's assistance, partially because he's going in the wrong direction. He's moving away from the promised land, not into the promised land, like Jacob is. He speaks truthfully in part about his speed. His young kids and his flocks would slow him down. There's no way he can keep up with Esau and his armed men. He refuses the, 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 uh, the guard to kind of bring him along because he's not going that way. Diplomatic? Deceitful? I'm not sure which it is. But we see that Jacob crosses into the land of promise. Now here's where it gets a little cloudy. When he was leaving the land to begin with and he saw the vision of, of the, you know, what we call Jacob's ladder, the, the angels ascending and descending to bring the blessing of God, okay, it's not something you climb. Well, the angels climbed, okay? He says that when he returns, he's going to build a temple, an altar in Bethel, and that he's going to give 10% to God. There's no record here of him going to Bethel. It says instead that he went to this place, which apparently had no name. He built a house there and called it Succoth, after the the, um, tents that he built for his livestock. There are time gaps that are involved in here. We don't know how long all of this takes place, but Jacob in his obedience is spotty, just sort of like us. When you go home, if you haven't already, look at the reflection for today, because Calvin recognizes this, the spottiness of our obedience, and because of the work of Christ, he does not hold that against us. But we see that, of course, he built himself a house. He is able to settle in a home. Abraham never did that. Abraham lived in tents. But Jacob is able to have enough security for a while that he is able to build a home. Not only that, we see that when he moves towards Shechem, he buys a piece of land for a hundred shekels. He moves to Shechem, or near, near Shechem, and he's buying more than a gravesite, a gravesite. Did Abraham ever own property? Only the grave. 
only the cave in which he and his wife and his, his the sense would be buried in. That's all he owned. Nothing else. Isaac, as far as we know, didn't own anything in the land, but now Jacob does. What are we to think of this? We are to think that God is dealing graciously with him, that God is revealing his love and faithfulness to Jacob because he receives a greater fulfillment of the promise, which ought to encourage the people of Israel as they're ready to go in, that they will receive an even greater fulfillment of the promise than their father Israel did. And we who are Christians who are in Christ receive an even greater fulfillment of the promise than they did. At some point, again, we don't know how many years, he erects an altar. What's significant about that is is that he did not use the Canaanite altars. He declares through the making of this that God is his God. That the gods of the Canaanites are not his God. But this particular God is his. And so we find in Deuteronomy 12 these instructions to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings on any place that you see. In other words, don't take advantage of a nearby altar left there by the Canaanites. Okay? They're told to tear them down in another place. But at that place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. He's saying, you are to tear down the altars of the Canaanites. You are not to use them, and you're not to worship in any old place you want, but there's going to be one place that you're going to worship. I am going to put my name there, and it would end up being Jerusalem and the temple, that is where you to be to be obedient. They were to erect an altar according to God's design at God's place and worship as God told them to. But we don't have to go to that temple. Because it became idolatrous in the life of Israel and God tore it down. We come to Christ, the living temple. We don't go to a place, we go to a person. He is a living temple together with his people. Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. And so we who have received grace are to worship, but we are to worship in Christ. That is where our worship is pleasing to God. Not in a particular place, but through Jesus, our worship is acceptable. Life can seem very anticlimactic. The horrible things that we imagine don't come to pass. Haven't you often spent time on your bed thinking about bad, bad things and they never came to pass? All those things you had nightmares about never happened? The things that we think will destroy us sometimes take place, but we survive. They don't destroy us. If we have our feet on solid ground, the solid rock... It's okay, though the storms may come. God offers the only solid ground that there is through faith in His Son, who is the Savior of sinners. 
And so you can receive this new identity by grace, but the result also seems sort of anticlimactic too. It's sort of ordinary. Testify in worship. Doesn't that sound anticlimactic to you? And yet, that's what God calls us to. By faith, by grace. So yes, giving God glory for having dealt graciously with us. That is our response. Let us pray. Father, um, while we who believe in Christ already have every spiritual blessing, we do not yet experience them in all their fullness. And so I ask that you, by your Spirit, would help us to experience them in increasing measure, that we might have a greater sense of who we are in Christ, that we might have greater spiritual stability and a more consistent obedience to you. Grant to us that we might know better just how graciously you have dealt with us. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, who lived and died as our representative before you. Amen.